podcast is back to talk about the little true crime documentary series that stole the show from the undoing murder on middle beach i'm Teresa, and i'm a jane slash bonnie i'm carolyn and i'm a madeline slash renata and i'm rebecca and i'm a jane slash madeline so on march 3rd 2010 barbara beach hamburg's body was found in the yard of her madison connecticut home by her daughter Allie hamburg and her sister conway beach She'd been stabbed and beaten earlier that morning, and then her son made a documentary about it. And that's what we're here to talk about. So let's start by talking about Madison, the person, not the place. Um, So Madison Hamburg is the son of Barbara Beach Hamburg, who made this documentary. And it may get confusing um, because his name is the same as the name is the town where she died. (laughs) So we'll try to make that as clear as possible. He was um, named before they lived in Madison, too. Yes. Yes, he was. It's just a coincidence. I would have moved to Guilford just to avoid the confusion. But yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they also, you know, it happens on Middle Beach Road, and her name is Beach. So there's just a lot here with the names. Her dad's name is also Sandy Beach. Sandy so, Beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think, so first I want to talk about the thing that kind of makes this documentary different, which is that it's coming from the point of view of essentially one of the victims. You know, he, he is a victim as just as much as his mother was. And often we talk about true crime as being sort of invasive to families. And should we feel guilty for thinking of this as entertainment? But here we have this amazing guy trying to solve his mom's murder, who knows what the power of a good documentary can do for a case. What did you guys think of the added layer of sort of family involvement in this doc? Rebecca, did that stand out to you at all? Yeah, I mean, at first, it kind of set me up to think this is going to be a random act of violence. But as time went on, it seemed like there was multiple suspects within his own family. And nobody was kind of giving their straightforward opinion. And there was a lot of finger pointing. And, you know, here you have Madison at the center of it, who's talking to his aunts and sister and grandmother and he's really at the center of it and he himself admits on camera that he was the police suspect at one point so Mm -hmm. the layers of it are very complex and it really is a fascinating perspective to come at it from the inside out and from both like you know trying to solve the crime and trying to process the trauma that this family has experienced together and ultimately i think that's what makes it such a remarkable piece is that yes he is actively trying to solve his mother's murder but he's also trying to understand familial trauma and the family systems therapy at work in his own dynamic. And I think that's what really made this such a standout piece. Yeah, Carolyn, what did you think? How did this measure up against like other more conventional sort of true crime docs that come from like an outsider's perspective? Like maybe they get family involvement, maybe they don't, maybe the, you know, with Serial, one of the things was that Heyman Lee's family was actually really upset about the whole thing because they felt like this story had been like closed but here we're getting the complete opposite where the family is really the one propelling the whole thing forward yeah well this made it to me so much more fascinating i don't think i've ever seen a documentary a true crime documentary done by somebody who was actually involved in the case or a victim in the case and i 
I think that that right away was captivating to me. And then having to watch him interact with these family members and these close family friends, who some of whom are suspects, some of whom he may have suspected, some, you know, he didn't suspect, but others were pointing fingers at. And uh, I mean, it just put him in this crazy place. And, And the fact that he stays so composed throughout most of these interviews or all of these interviews he never loses it and i i feel like that is just so incredible that he was able to detach himself emotionally and and go forth with this yes because for for me like that this is him and and it's very clear in the last episode where he talks about this is how he needed to deal with what had happened he needed to go Mm -hmm. on this journey which is just a stark contrast to his sister while he's facing this head on and really getting in deep his sister has completely tried to go to the other side of the world and have a completely different life so it was really fascinating to just think about this as how we how each of us deals with things differently and what helps us. Yeah, I mean, it's almost the study in like how a family deals with sort of a gruesome and unsolved murder, right? Like Mm -hmm. the grandmother says to him at some point, you know, like everybody grieves differently. Don't let anyone tell you how to do it. And you absolutely 100% see that in like every family member there. (laughs) Everyone is dealing and coping in some some different way, some better than others. And yeah, I was really like, bro, how are you keeping it together through all of this? It is amazing. I would have like flipped out on every one of them and like tried to like strong arm them into a confession or something. Um, and then I would have not had a documentary that HBO would buy. But um, <laughs> or I mean, it could have turned out into a very different kind of documentary and maybe HBO <laughs> still would have been into that. <laughs> yeah. um, so and then there's also just like the sheer subterfuge like this kid has balls of steel right right walks Mm -hmm. into the police department over and over again wearing a wire and tapes the police secretly which is crazy yeah that's my new kink secretly taping police (laughs) yeah but somehow him doing it with his father felt even more high stakes because his father is you know, definitely there, there is something he is not telling. There is like this wall that he has up. And I mean, it just makes him this very like scary character to me or, you know, scary person. Yeah. Listen, if that dad didn't have a hand in it, he is still worthy of being in jail for something. I have never mm-hmm. seen a sketchier person. He, he's like Michael Skakel. I yeah. was, like, I was always like, yeah. I don't know, maybe he didn't kill Martha Moxley, but he looks like he did some horrible shit to yep. somebody and should probably just go to yep. jail anyway. Yeah. <laughs> he also, I will say this right now, Jason Bateman needs to play the dad and Zac Efron needs to play <laughs> Madison Hamburg when they inevitably turn this into HBO's <laughs> scripted drama about this story. Who would play Conway Beach, though? I feel like you could get like a, like um, Carrie Coon I or think- someone like... Or, or like Jenna Rollins is too too old now, but she would have been yeah. good at one point. Um, or um, what's her name? Frances McDormand. She's such a chameleon. She like. What about mm. like an Amy Sedaris? <laughs> like, really oh, I mean, so. kind of. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> oh God. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the cops who sort of point the finger at him in the first episode, or like try to. You know, they're just being cops. Like cops are just. They're gonna try and see what they can wheedle out of anybody so they're like you know they say well we found a cigarette with your dna on it and it's like yeah you 
I'm a smoker. And he lives at the house. Really. Like, he's not yeah. smoking inside. Like, bro. <laughs> but then I, so I was looking at Madison's Twitter today. Or someone, there was some woman on there who was, like, suggesting that Madison and Allie had killed their mom. And Ew. Based on what she saw in the documentary, so you're like, were we watching the same documentary? I've never wanted anyone to be a Russian bot more in my life than this person, because who comes at a grieving son like that? Yeah, Jesus. And same to the police. It's like three years later, you don't know this kid isn't part of this. He's there talking to you. He's setting up meetings with you, trying to talk to you more. And you think, what? I read in an interview with him that he said that he believes that the police thought that he was doing the documentary to figure out how much he knew, how much Uh, they know, rather. I should say it that mm -hmm. way. So the police, their whole idea was that the reason why Madison was doing the documentary was so he could figure out how much the cops knew. And obviously that's not at all what was going down. But that Mm -hmm. was like how he ultimately justified the fact that they continued to keep him on as a suspect. And, you know... If he was a stone-cold sociopathic killer, that is the kind of behavior that a sociopath would cavalierly indulge in. But I think that is a whole-ass stretch of the cops, especially when there are so many other more viable candidates. Yeah, especially three years later. Like, if they haven't come for you in three years, like, what are the chances they're going to come for you now? Like, why would you even, like, you, why would you put yourself back in their crosshairs? It doesn't, Right. it doesn't make any sense. But, like, let's talk about these cops. They're obviously incompetent buffoons this madison police department like that's the takeaway and and i think that that is what is wild here from start to finish in this documentary is how suspicious the cops come across with their you know lack of information this dna testing problem the you know when when they're having that hearing and that detective sits there and tries to say that they just had a phone call last week yeah i'd love to i really i really hope that madison found stuff about that in the files that they end up disclosing to him finally but i i just feel like the cops are i i I don't know what happened there, but clearly that is the big roadblock was that there is, I think that the cops messed up and it happens and it's tragic, but this, a lot of this really felt like a cover up from a, from, you know, the law enforcement point of view. It feels to me like, so when I first got out of college, I worked at a small newspaper and I was, um, the police reporter, right? So I had to go to what is the equivalent of the Madison Police Department every week, right? Like it was a (laughs) Connecticut town with fancy people who don't have a whole lot of violent crime. right? And even that, like the cops are so, I remember once they busted some kind of like marijuana basement growing operation or something. And this is long before it was legal in any way and I asked if they had a picture and the one guy was like no (laughs) and and so but so but then there was this other just like nice cop who shows up with a picture and he's like the only picture we have has this undercover's face undercover in it so we've blocked out his face just don't like don't reveal who he is i'm like you are sadly mistaken if you think we have the technology here to (laughs) figure out who this man is but like they're just like secretive for no reason half the time especially in these little departments where it's like oh we don't do anything 
half the time. You know what I mean? Like shortly after I left that job, one of my, one of the things I had to do every week was on Monday, I would go down there. I would read through the past week of the police log, which is every call they get. Oh my God. And I would have to, I was the person who pulled out the, those things for the police blotter, right? That you read in wow, you're a narc. newspapers. Yes, I am. <laughs> and um, so I would have to pull out all the arrests, but then I would also just go through the other calls to find what was interesting. And it would, lit- I shit you not that I once put in there that someone had called the police and the police had responded because their son would not eat their broccoli. Oh my God. And so not long after that, like, they just stopped, like, they started recording calls differently so that they just didn't really say anything about what the call was. Because basically they had been embarrassed for so long by the ridiculous things that they had to show up to (laughs) that they didn't want anyone to know anymore. And when I see this police department, that is, like, just all I can think of, right? Because, you know, Conway Beach has all these important documents sitting in like a shipping container that looks like it just rolled off the docks that these people have apparently never even looked at. How that about had the been purse? sitting in Barbara's Yeah, her purse. Yeah. Never, like they could not even be bothered to go through uh, like her divorce related documents. It is like it just seems like lazy policing of the utmost. So again, I read this interview with uh, Madison this morning, and one of the other things he said when asked, rightfully so, were you angry about the way the Madison Police Department handled this? And mm-hmm. he said, honestly, at this point, I feel like they were just more overwhelmed, which is kind of, I was really angry yeah. about this at first, but mm-hmm. you know, having listened to what you just said and you know my dabblings in local crime journalism, <laughs> I think this is a big problem. I think when you have these little small sleepy towns that are very affluent and you know see white collar crime mostly, they're not seeing brutal beating homicides. It is mm-hmm. absolutely out of their depth. And what they should have done would have been to call in you know, a state force sooner than they did to make sure that the DNA was being handled correctly because that's mm-hmm. another big problem. They say all the DNA kits were expired. Well, you know, if you're a police officer worth your salt, you're going to test the DNA kit before you show up to probably the biggest homicide you're ever going to work in your career if you're a Madison cop. So I just feel yeah, like it was inexperienced. It was 2010. Right. You know, this didn't happen in the 90s. This was 2010. Right. We all, you know, know about DNA. This has been on the scene for a long time. So I think it was more inexperience and maybe some ego, you know, this idea that this mm-hmm. is their big case that they're going to get to hold on to. And then there's going to be a lot of media attention. You see that. Um, I forget the name of the police chief who's later in Glen Glen, something like that. You know, he's excited. He's excited to be at the press release and at press conference and talking about it. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's part of that is gatekeeping. Part of it is they were out of their depth. And what you get is a perfect storm of cops that are unwilling to, you know, work together, work with the resources they've been giving. You know, in the fourth episode, he has a bunch of fantastic digital investigators on his team and he Mm -hmm. tries to collaborate with the police and the police just immediately shut it down and they're very hostile about that and that's where I got angry again I'm like you know you might Mm -hmm. be out of your depth here you might have messed up at the crime scene but you have an opportunity to correct that and work with you know within your power and with these forces at B to make this right and by all accounts they seem more interested in protecting their image than solving the case which is frustrating well, since we're talking about the D- DNA, I want I want to ask you guys if you were as confused about some of this as I was. So in the first episode, you know, Madison goes to talk to the police. They tell him that they've got the DNA on the cigarette. 
They also tell him that there is, I believe they say male Hamburg DNA under Barb's fingernails. Oh, I missed that. I don't remember that. Yeah, I I, missed that. They definitely say they have DNA under her fingernails. And I'm pretty sure they say male Hamburg, as in they're trying to insinuate that it could be him or his father. Right. But then we hear about all this stuff about the state lab being um, discredited, that there was a new one being built. And so they wanted to wait for it to be built. And then, which seems like, is that how this DNA expired? Because they just decided to wait for, no, I don't know. And we should also point out that, you know, Dr. Henry Lee of every famous case you've ever heard of lives and works in Connecticut. He is our very own. I have seen him personally speak at the, like, Forensic Institute in Connecticut. Like, like I thought he... the same thing, Teresa. I'm like, where is Henry Lee when you need him? Like, yeah. he would have busted this case wide open. Mm-hmm. And also, DNA, yes, DNA can expire, but how did were they so reckless in not, if they, when they had the chance to obtain more DNA before she was cremated, things like that. They, yeah, that I hate seemed... that they cremated her. That really did not sit well with Really me. quickly, too. Yeah. The time frame on that was really fast. But also, like, DNA, I, you can go back, people go back, and people are still going back and testing all these untested rape cases from 20 years ago and getting mm-hmm. DNA right. out of it. You can't tell me that the, whatever DNA they had actually expired in 10 years i mean my god her purse alone probably has got her dna all over it well that was the thing personal belongings and like you know there are so many things that you would leave dna on that it just like i said it's reckless something went wrong someone had to move that pallet yeah somebody did not want they, they're the reason that this is so fascinating is because you know as you're watching this you find Madison keeps hitting these roadblocks and they're there for a reason that's what the problem is there is like something and somebody who set this up to really just be a giant cock block it's yeah it seems uh, my guess is that somehow the lab or the police so mishandled the DNA mm-hmm. that and they're trying to backpedal it, to protect themselves for yeah, their own. Yeah, error. they're they're claiming it's expired, which doesn't make any sense. So, like, they lost it, they contaminated it, they did something, but it's hard to believe that it's actually just expired. That doesn't make any sense, or that they actually can't find more. Yeah. I've been thinking for a while now about cold cases in the hands of these police departments that are so busy with other things or disinterested or they don't have the resources to work the case appropriately. And then you have, you know, a citizen sleuth like Madison who has dedicated the last five years of his life to this and to not want to work. And I understand maybe to some degree having some hesitation with Madison because he is a family member, but to not accept the help you're given to try and close this case that's where it kind of just really makes me feel kind of sick. And I think about how many cold cases are out there that have just been neglected. And if there was a different way, you know, you think about the training that is involved in becoming a police officer versus, you know, the education that Madison has received and his his natural investigative skills. Like, wouldn't you want somebody like that on your side that could offer yeah. insight? I mean, he's saying all the time, like, I have an open line of communication with my father that we could dive into Mm -hmm. and they're just not interested and i do think there's an ego among officers that like well you couldn't possibly understand the inner workings of law enforcement so we're not gonna entertain you either that and during the hearing 
one of the cops keeps being like rolling his eyes, being like, well, that's not how that works. Mm-hmm. You don't know how that works. It's uh-huh. like, well, we've all seen enough mm-hmm. cop TV and done enough research to have some idea here. So clue us in. Like, why does there always have to be this cloak and mirror around police work? Like, it should be more transparent. We should crowdsource cold cases. I mean, I know it's a meme, but when they were talking about defunding the police, everybody was saying like, oh, well, who's going to solve crime? And it's like white women with podcasts. And as yeah. much as that's a joke, like I do feel like there is some merit to that. I mean, the Reddit sleuths and my favorite website of them all is websleuths.com, which has retired lawyers, active lawyers, retired law enforcement officers, all working together using you know digital trails to solve cases and piece them together. And it is fascinating and these people are brilliant and I think all the time like you know there's a digital forensic person on there who can pull documents from stuff you wouldn't believe and I'm watching all of this stuff happen on these web sleuth forums thinking to myself like man do the cops look at this like is this where they're getting leads because this is some really serious police work being done here well this actually reminds me I have to I have to like put a PSA in here so I don't know if either of you ever listened to um the murder squad which is Paul Holes and Billy Jensen of um, Golden State Killer fame. Um, oh, yeah. I was going to say Paul Holes. Why is that name so familiar? Yeah. So he's one of the detectives who helped solve that. He's really one of the detectives who kept it alive and made yeah. sure it was eventually yeah. solved. And Billy Jensen helped finish the book um, after after Michelle McNamara died. And so they have a podcast now because Billy, for many years, has been doing sort of crowdsourcing of investigations and what he specifically does which is genius is if there's like a video of someone that's been unidentified right of a suspect or something like that he just uses fake facebook to promote that video in whatever area it came from and targets people with ads to basically get leads and he has solved crimes this way right so yeah But more importantly, so I was listening to it earlier this afternoon, and they mentioned something that I'd forgotten about, but NamUs, which stands for the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, um, it's what, like, medical examiners, law enforcement, and family of missing people use to kind of try and find people who might, to either figure out who someone is or find their missing loved one, um, is basically being defunded. No. And so there's a there's a change.org petition now. Um, Billy and Paul were saying, you know, write to your legislator, your local legislators. and um, Wow, I can't believe I know. haven't heard of that. They must be trying to keep yeah. this pretty hush-hush, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I you'd mean, think that crazy. that would be more mainstream in discussion. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 like, helps compare DNA, dental records. I'm reading this all off the internet, by the way. Um and fingerprints on behalf of law enforcement agencies as they house records for most of their cases in their system. So it, it's also one of those things that, like, cross-references across dur- jurisdictions. I right. Th- you know what I mean? Like, so... Um, well, maybe we'll get that link know, up on our socials, and hopefully some of you big yeah. little podcasters out there can sign this change.org position, and maybe we can uh, make sure that's not... I mean, my God, if you're going to defund yeah. something, that's what you choose to defund? Like, Jesus. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Also, how much could it cost? It just seems like, you know, it's like a it's like a computer system. Like how it just seems so stupid. But again, law enforcement often makes no sense. Um, so let's dive into the suspects, ladies. Uh, so to add just drama upon drama to this, all of the main suspects are family members, which is one hell of a Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> is it? 
and I, I was listening to the Crime Writers On um, podcast where they t- earlier today and they, they talked about this and the undoing, by the way. And someone was like, how weird is it that like this upper middle class white woman had so many people who might have killed her? Right. And it got me wondering, how many of your family members do you think might be implicated in your murder? Oh, my if God. You died today? <laughs> so many. <laughs> where to begin? Yeah, no, um, I think most uh, of my family would be like, oh, yeah, Rebecca, we snapped. Couldn't couldn't handle it. See, I feel like my family, it, they like everyone in my family would be like, oh, it was probably Carolyn who killed. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would I would be the main suspect. I don't know why, but um, I so that was the thing for me with this this whole documentary series, because it did feel like it kept it all in the family. Mm-hmm. And I understand you know why because there were things that seemed to like loop back but i i don't actually believe that it was with the exception of the father who does kind of raise a lot of flags uh but i don't necessarily think it was any of the people that he does kind of you know press on hard and like lay into hard here Let's talk about them one by one. Let's start with Allie, because I think she's probably the least viable yeah. subject. Allie is the daughter. She's Madison's sister. She was, like, a, what, 16-year-old girl, 18-year-old girl at the time? 16 or 17. 16, I, 16 yeah. yeah. High school. Yeah. So she's, you know, the parents failed these kids on any number of levels. That's, that's pretty clear. And Allie... Um, you know, she was diagnosed as borderline personality disorder, which I don't think was a legitimate diagnosis. Yeah. Just watching this. It's like, also really young you... to diagnose BPD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she basically sounds like a teenager who had lived in a shitty situation who was taking it out on her mom sometimes. And then and then Conway, her aunt, accuses her of murder, basically. Yeah, like when they were talking <laughs> about the stuff she said, I was like, oh, God, like my mom was not. You know, half that much of an alcoholic. And I definitely said that kind of shit to her all the time (laughs) when I was 17. So, God, I would be a suspect for sure. It's just teenage girl angst and drama, I think, that Conway was picking up on and way overreacting to. Well, Conway is also deeply traumatized. Right. mm -hmm. Conway, you know, like, that's what I was saying. Like, she is not somebody who looks at things rationally. So you Mm -hmm. have to take her memories and perception of Allie with a grain of salt. But uh, so when Alex and I were watching this, when my roommate Alex and I were watching this and the finger got pointed at Allie very seriously, uh, I was like, you know, I really don't think that she could have done this because how would she have moved that body? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I'm like five foot three, a fairly small woman. And Alex got down on the ground (laughs) and I tried to drag him from the living room to the dining room. And spoiler alert, I couldn't do it. So there is no way, even with like the strength of being in the heat of the moment, that Mm somebody like Allie and then for that theory Conway would be able to drag a dead body like Mm. on grass or in snow whatever conditions they had like up that hill around the house and over towards where the bushes were where the body was found right well Madison exonerates his sister by the end of the fourth episode if you haven't seen 
the show, you shouldn't be listening to this episode anyways, but he yeah. <laughs> is able to track down. And, and this was another instance where I'm like, how did the police not do this? Like, it seems to me like the police yeah. should have maybe like followed up with the school. Called the school? But he's able to confirm that his sister did come in late to school and then she was an early dismissal, which gives her an alibi for the time when the murder was committed. So Allie is mm-hmm. not the one. And Allie, mazel tov to her, who just recently got married in Argentina to a very sexy man. So, yeah. and she also really had a lovely, in the second episode, I was kind of freaked out by her because she had such a calm about her. Yeah. And by the fourth yeah. episode, I'm like, wow, this is a really beautiful portrayal of how two different people handle grief. And Madison has handled his by really leaning into it and wanting to know everything and figure it out. And his sister has leaned into it by leading away and living her own life. And she has this beautiful monologue about finding a family and... It didn't matter that it wasn't the family she thought it was going to be with her actual biological relatives. She's found this new family in Argentina. And I was really struck by her grace and poise for being such a young woman that's gone through such a deep trauma. And, you know, this documentary doesn't talk about it too much, but how traumatizing for her to have this kind of contentious relationship with her mother and then have her mother get murdered in the middle of all of that. Like all of that unresolved inability yeah. to apologize or get to know your mother as an adult, which has, you know, been the thing that's redeemed my mother and I's tumultuous relationship, having that taken yeah. away from you. So I think that, you know, Conway, by comparison, is deeply troubled. She's struggled with drug addiction and alcoholism and uh, medical issues. Some very serious health issues. Yeah. Yep. And obviously the deep trauma of discovering her sister's body. And I think that it Mm -hmm. makes as much as it's horrible to hear Conway saying, I hate your sister. And I think she did it. Like I do feel that that's coming from a place of deep, deep hurt and not necessarily a rational look at it. And when Madison confronts Conway with the reality that Allie couldn't possibly have had anything to do with this, you know, you can hear that, like, shell shock in Conway's voice, like, oh, my God, have I really just spent the last five years vilifying my mm-hmm. niece for no reason? Like, <laughs> it, it was very powerful. Yeah, I. she really seemed like, she seemed like she could really, like, uh, she might spend a lot of time on Reddit boards yeah. going down conspiracy rabbit holes. But um, at first, but then you're like, oh. When confronted with an actual fact, she is able to give this up. Yep. You know what I mean? Which I think is, you know, in this day and age is almost unheard of. Right. Like, like if yeah. it was our president, oh, he God. would be like, well, no, that's just fake news. They yep. faked it. Like, yeah. Uh, and it sounds like it helped her heal, you know, like it, that knowledge yeah. that it wasn't her niece, like uh-huh. really was good for Conway. And Madison did say in this interview that she's in a much, much better place now than she was at the filming, which I'm really happy to hear. Yeah, she. it really seemed like the longer the filming went on, the kind of worse oh, yeah. it, it was yeah. for Conway. I mean, which, she is you, doing interviews with a vape, and then yeah. there's that phone call where she calls him, and she is so drunk and slurring her words yeah. and just ranting at him. That was hard to hear. Him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because, again, we're looking at this from a family perspective. Like, this is Madison's family, and he had to make the hard choice to leave things like that in the documentary and make this part of the story, uh, knowing that that's going to be hurtful. And I think that he does seem to have a good relationship with Conway consistently. And Mm -hmm. I think she understood what he was trying to do and uh, would support him. But it was, it was, Conway was a person who was, at once like spectacular to watch because it was such Mm -hmm. a train wreck and you know she just was really uh, the character of all this 
But yeah, at the I mean, same time, at one point she's she like speaking to spirits. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, she is like the real, yeah, she is like the real gift of this documentary in some ways because she mm-hmm. is, she just offers us so many things to be like, what the fuck? But it also, when you step back and like think like, oh my God, this is his aunt, this poor boy who lost his mother and like mm-hmm. needs that kind of support. And this is, this is what he, he, he has. Um, I still don't think Conway is the killer, despite the fact that she hired a hitman, though. Are we going to talk about that? I mean, she tried to hire a hitman, which I think means, like, she talked to some shady people who were like, yeah, sure, I've got a hitman for you. And then just some guy showed up and took her money and left, like, never came (laughs) back. Like, and it was probably like, you know, she says she took the money out of her 401k, which you're like, at this point, she's being described as, like, hanging out with pimps and doing drugs. So you're like... Where did you get a form? Right. How much money could possibly be in that? Not enough to hire a hitman, I'm guessing. So, I mean, it's still, it's a crazy thing to admit on camera. But, yeah, it does not sound to me like she got anywhere near close to actually successfully hire When she admitted that, that's when I stopped finding her so guilty. When she said that I had thought about Mm -hmm. hiring a hitman, I was like, anyone that actually Mm. killed her, again, unless you're just a stone cold Mm -hmm. sociopath, which I do not think this woman is, you know, she's emotional. She's she's the opposite of it. So like, would she really admit to hiring a hitman if she was the one that killed her? I do not think so. I think this woman is many things, but she's not stupid. Like she would know that that would look crazy if she had anything actually to do with it. So that's when I started really being like, I think this woman is just deeply, deeply traumatized and I hope she's seeing a therapist and I hope that weed is prescription and somebody is monitoring (laughs) and helping her through this because she just seemed very broken like a woman absolutely at rock bottom and again like Allie you know had a lot of unresolved shit with her sister that you know died Mm -hmm. with her sister and she doesn't get to tell her sister how much she loved her how she was her best friend they you know the Mm -hmm. last sort of conversation they were having was about how Barbara wanted uh, Conway to move out of the house because Conway had been living with the with Barbara and Allie around she was recovering from brain surgery and how that sort of relationship was breaking down. And, you know, we've all been there with a family member. They're like, get out of my space. Like, I'm done with you. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I feel that that's kind of the moment I was like, okay, Conway is just super, super damaged and needs help. But she is not, in my mind, the killer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Um, so we're going to save the dad for last yes. because the the series sort of does that. So let's talk about the gifting tables a little bit because this is the shadiest ass thing I've ever heard of. But also kind of I feel like if you're dumb enough to do this, like I've got a bridge to sell you. Like I don't understand who ever was like, yeah, I'll just give you people $5,000 for Teresa, have you never dinner? met a white suburban mom? These women <laughs> love a pyramid scheme. Oh. There's nothing they like more. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. And I, we've talked about this a little bit on one of the other podcasts. I mentioned the podcast, The Dream, and I, I, I'm starting to see it in like people I went to high school with who are getting into these things where it's like, my job is boring and sucks. So I'm going to try to like become an entrepreneur by selling leggings or whatever. But this is literally you just show up to dinner and give people five thousand dollars for having done nothing it's like scientology only without the books like i don't understand this at all yeah at all i was very confused by the end of that episode (laughs) yeah i actually had to go into some deep googling here and really try to wrap my head around this more because i couldn't I understood that it was a pyramid scheme, but I couldn't understand the steps that built the pyramid. You know what I mean? Yeah, me. Either. Like I, couldn't... I don't understand 
like how you're once you're the dessert how do you become the dessert again so that you get another forty thousand dollars or whatever it is did you figure that out no so i think that you just start another table and then you build up to dessert again and that's what was happening so like there'd be once you reach dessert of the table you had to leave that table and then go and start another one from scratch and find more people to build that one up okay. that i pretty sure is how this works based on or like my... you go join someone else's table as a appetizer right you could do that okay. but it's more lucrative for you to be the one to start it because you're going to rise up faster Okay. And it's only the people that... at the dessert level that were getting paid. There was no lesser payouts. That's what it sounds like. It. I was not clear on that. I did see some things where you there were some payouts at a certain level, uh, but I I don't know. I mean, again, like it seemed so. It was so confusing. I couldn't believe that these like nitwits had gotten this figured out. <laughs> like I, I couldn't believe that they had this down pat because I was studying this for at least an hour and, and Googling and watching things. And I was like, wait, but I don't understand. So when I'm dessert, do I eat cake and get money? Like, I don't know. So um, these tables were crazy. Uh, I don't ever remember even hearing about this in the news here in Connecticut when it happened and the people who went to jail and everything for it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how I missed this existence, um, but... I mean, it's probably yeah. for the best. I did ask around to some people that I, I like texted people and I was like, did you ever hear of this? And mm -hmm. pretty much no one had. Um, and this was, you know, these were people in like Southern Connecticut and Central Connecticut where it moved up into. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't know. This is, the, yeah, these I mean, tables are crazy. You guys, your neck of the woods got implicated in I this. I know. You know. I saw Canton. Yeah, there. Canton, my, my town I live in. I was like, the Farmington Valley yeah. was, but also, did that surprise me at all? Absolutely not. No. I'm like, I can give you a list right now of people that would be like, oh my God, this is so great. This is feminism in action. Women doing it for themselves. Keep your own money. Hide it from your husbands. Like, no. I, I feel like. It, it, it's the opposite of feminism in action. Yes. It's like, I'm going to scam other women out of money they probably can't afford to give up no. for literally nothing. Like, I'm not even pretending to give them anything in return for the, I, I mean, it is, it's, it's almost, it's like Nexium, but without the weird Without the stuff. branding and Keith Rainier. But it yeah. was essentially a cult because these women were keeping it secret um, they had, like, certain language that they used to uh, mm -hmm. express certain things. So it was very cult-like. And, and I guess that was where all the problems came about with all the tension among these women um, mm -hmm. for, like, revealing secrets. You know, all of the family candidates are compelling. And I, we'll get to, you know, Jeffrey mm -hmm. Hamburg and why he's shady but the the violent nature of this crime, you know, they talk a lot about crimes of passion mm -hmm. versus, like, what a hitman would do. And the fact that she was so extensively injured, I mean, really intensely injured, just all over, to me yeah. is real rage. And mm -hmm. that's why, obviously, the family is always a suspect when you see a crime of passion like this. It's really rageful. But there's also the money motivator here. If somebody had lost, you know, dissolved their 401k, dissolved their life yep. savings to participate in one of these things, and then they didn't get the money, and they realize it's a scam, and Barbara is the woman that brought them in. And we should note that part of why Barbara, you know, really kind of caught some flack within the gifting tables was she kept recruiting people from AA. 
which is a mm-hmm. huge no-no because these are already people that are struggling yeah. with their recovery mm-hmm. and probably have financial difficulties surrounding that. And then you're bringing them into this scheme and you get someone that falls off the bandwagon and they've lost all their money. Like that is a real motivation to bludgeon someone with a hammer. Right. I like I was definitely like this is the most plausible before the last episode. I was 100 percent like, no, this- you know some angry husband tracked her down and killed her like he's like you took my wife for all we're worth and now our kids can't go to college right and yeah that i mean i think she had a broken arm yeah like if because okay we're gonna veer off into jeffrey hamburg territory a little bit but you'd think a man who's clearly a man of means even if he's hiding the money like he was in court yeah he couldn't have done it done it himself yep so you've got what you've got left is that he could have hired someone to do it and mm-hmm. i don't think you hire a hitman to repeatedly stab and bludgeon and break the arm of someone you, they show up they've got a silencer it's a couple of bullets to the head and you're done like that's so you're saying that you think it's more likely that a woman somebody involved with the gifting tables thing would it be a more likely suspect to you than jeffrey hamburg Based on the nature of of the crime, based on the nature of the murder, like how it was executed. Unless there's some way he could have done it himself. Yeah. I, I, I don't see a hitman having done it. I also don't see a hitman covering her with cushions. Like that's another thing that's very either remorseful or, you know, killers that cover are typically they don't want to look at their victim. And you'd imagine mm-hmm. that a expensive assassin had seen plenty of people, wasn't his first day on the job. A whole, you know, you would think. Well, wow. you know, that private detective said that, like, they thought this was more about it was personal and they didn't want to have to look at her. And I didn't really buy that explanation very much. To me, it was, like, clear that they moved her body out of sight yep. from the golf course. They covered up the pool of blood lest, like, one of the neighbors notice it. But they left the purse the keys, yep. the cell phone, the whatever there, because no one's going to notice that from afar. No. Right? Yeah. So um, to me, his whole diagnosis of that situation was a little bad, I thought. But So what about um, the woman, that friend who claimed that she was over the day before and saw yeah. a man in a ski mask? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I that was very compelling for it to be a hitman, mm-hmm. but that could also be someone casing it, you know, yeah, it could be someone's husband. Right. Is what I'm right. thinking. It's not necessarily one of the women who did it. I, it it could be someone's husband, someone's brother, someone's son. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think in that final episode we get this explanation that like someone and this was one of the most interesting this was the other thing that sort of swayed me towards the idea that it could be the dad again was that someone told her made a point of calling her up and telling her the wrong time right court date right that was yeah so in order to do that you need to know she has a court date yep which doesn't really make sense for the for you know some gifting table woman's husband except you that's public for the most part if you go to ct case lookups you can often see um files like that if they're not sealed and there would have been no reason yeah but but why but why would you you know there were other women who knew, I mean, there were people who knew what time her court date was. Uh, you know, her friend yeah. did, Conway did. So, 
you know, some there there could have been information leaked even unknowingly by one of those people. Um, and mm-hmm. I think this that was one of the things that came out that somebody that when he when Madison had that like light bulb that he figured out that somebody might have called and mm-hmm. changed the court date. Yeah. Uh, that those phone records that I assume would have been part of the dump of information that he did finally get from the police, I assume, because he said they have her phone, they have those records. Mm-hmm. So that is something that they are going to be able to look at more. And again, that is something that like you'd think he was always trying to reach out to the police and connect with them and give them information. You'd think that they would have looked at that right away. Like if I was, you know, a detective on a murder, I would be going through the person's phone for everything from the past. Like, I mean, I imagine they did. He says the police still have her phone. So that's, you know, and the police is also, it's not in their best interest to tell Madison everything. So you got to assume that there are stuff that they didn't tell him that now he's privy to. And I hope we get a follow up from him. Oh, and, so much hope. You know, yeah. another thing he'd mentioned was it's really mm-hmm. tricky for him now because the case is entering that stage where they've released to him, which means eventually a lot of this information will become public. And mm-hmm. he doesn't want his mom's autopsy released, which, you know, I think mm-hmm. he, that means he's seen it at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of entering that area now where he's like, well, shoot, I wanted this information, but I don't want the whole world to know all of this. And now I've gotten the Mm -hmm. whole world invested in it. So people are going to have interest far more than if he hadn't made this documentary. So it's really complex how his feelings have kind of evolved and changed as the case has progressed. But I just keep going back to the violence that was done to her body and... Yeah, it just seems like, you know, you could argue that she fought back and a lot of this was defensive wounds. But, you know, she had her carotid cut. She had multiple head injuries. She was uh, had ribs broken like that is a serious, serious Mm -hmm. assault. And Mm -hmm. she was not she didn't seem to be a very, you know, tall or big woman that could fight off. You know, she's quite petite looking. Mm I can't imagine that she could have put up that much of a fight. And they're confident that like all of the injuries were sustained like pre-death yeah. like it wasn't that mm-hmm. they it wasn't from like the dragging of the body that like broke ribs or anything like that well there was do we know that for sure we don't know that for sure I, yeah when he goes back to the house with the detective they do do that sort of recreation yep. right where they're mm-hmm. like okay she's walking up to the door someone surprises her they fought so there's a little bit of a struggle they knock over the statue yeah so but maybe she fell off the stairs right yep. and maybe yeah she hurt herself doing that and then maybe she bet and then she backtracks to because you know where the pool of blood is is out by the street basically and that's um, where you're gonna want to go if someone's attacking you is you want to get to the street you want to let your neighbors know so she's yeah you want to run running away. that way or get back to your car right and so she's so there any number of things could have happened between that step and where clearly the final you know sort of i'm guessing a stabbing took place that the carotid probably that yep. finally sort of ended things mm-hmm. like who knows they could have grabbed her by an arm she could have fallen she could have done this she could have you, you know what i mean yeah. and then finally they're like okay uh, now i got to get the knife out i mean you but it just feels so amateurish mm-hmm. messy you know yeah, it's really mad. I mean, a hammer? Yep. What kind of hitman shows up with no a hammer? Hitman. No hitman. None. None. Hammer is also, to me, really like a weapon of convenience. Like, I wouldn't right. show up to kill somebody with a hammer. That's like... 
yeah. somebody that's you know either doing it in a moment of passion, which it doesn't. It does seem like there's premeditation here with the ski mask thing the day before. That is mm-hmm. too much of a coincidence just to be that. With the court date being, you know, t- her getting told the court dates at 2 p.m. instead of 9.30. Like, all of that speaks to premeditation. But the actual murder weapon, as you say, is very amateurish. Like, that's somebody that, you know, watched an episode of CSI. We're like, well, that's an effective way to kill someone. And I'm angry and I want to, yeah. you know, bludgeon this person. Or it's like, I, the, I found this on the side of the house. Right. You know, like, wh- which... Then leads you to think, like, could it be as simple as someone was breaking into the house? Or, like, one of the things I, and this is weird, like, there's that, it looks like there was an outdoor shower. Mm -hmm. And then there's also, like, the golf course right there. Yeah. Like, how Mm. many creeps were wandering through that golf course seeing her out in her yard on a regular basis? You you know, it could be something as random and, you know... As random, but also, like, as mundane as that? Like, how, how often... That happens to women all the time. Yeah. But again, it's, it's yeah. the sheer violence of it that just makes me think, okay, so it's just, like, a crazy dude on the golf course? Like, it's just so mm-hmm. much violence for somebody that didn't have any connection to the case. And is, right. it's just, like, a one-off psycho, which is Well, rare. and there was no theft involved. Right. Like, it wasn't mm-hmm. like they were breaking and entering. She would have taken their purse, purse or something. Or took anything... Um, that that kind of makes random get thrown out the window here. Yeah, in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, you know, I think Madison sort of alludes to this in the last episode when he's asking his dad on that last call, like, should I be worried? Yeah. And I think what mm-hmm. he's sort of alluding to there is like maybe it's not his dad, but maybe it's a business partner right. who was worried about those documents yeah. being exposed. Yep. Yeah, and I think that was very smart of him to ask that because I was getting worried for him when he was pulling up all those shell companies. I was like, oh, oh, Madison, maybe don't do this. Like, this is really making me nervous for you. I hope you have a... Well, you could see how nervous he was in discovering that because of everything he had found, you know, like circling his mother's death. This was definitely the most dangerous, inflammatory, and, like, murder-provoking. It made the gifting tables look like child's play. Right. Exactly. So that to me, I I mean, the, I, the father is just so bizarre. Yeah. Let's please get into him because he is such a bizarre father that, and, and the way that he (laughs) lacks all, I mean, like, can you imagine having a conversation like that, that where your father is just constantly like stonewalling you and saying, I can't talk about this. Like, well, but I mean, this is, it's like the way he's saying, I can't talk about this is like, my lawyers told me to never speak of this again. Like he may as well be saying that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he is Trump and like, if Trump and Bob Durst had a baby. Oh my God. Teresa. They would make this man. Right. And like, he kind of looks like Bob Durst. He does look like Bob Durst, only Bob Durst is more sympathetic somehow. Yeah. So, like... like Who would Bob have ever Durst thought those seems... words would leave your mouth? <laughs> oh, my... I, I actually have, like, a weird soft spot for Bob Durst. Okay. Like, everybody... All my friends think I'm weird, but... Follow-up like, episode where we unpack Teresa's weird <laughs> fetish for Bob, Bob Durst. Durst yeah. He's... He, like, he seems to kill with a purpose, right? He only... Like, he only kills you if you're, like, backing him into a corner. <laughs> like... And otherwise, he just seems like this, like, eccentric weirdo that's kind of amusing most of the time. Oh, my God. When he's what a hot take on Bob Durst. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, like when they when they go to where he grew up in Queens, when they said he grew up in Forest Hills and then go there, I was like, I knew that man was from Queens. Like the moment he started talking, like he is he is Trump and Bob Durst just like in a nutshell. Yep. But yeah, sorry, he's definitely a weird Stonewall kind of dad. Um, so let's let's talk about like their family history with the dad a little bit, right? So we get this picture of him because he looks like a fairly I don't know, active dad in all those home videos we get to look at. Like, he seems like he's around for a while, yep. right? He seems like a normal dad for a little while. Yep, he's doing the yard work. He's playing with the kids. There's lots of pictures of him, you know, being close with Barb, physically affectionate. And then they say mm -hmm. that there was that period where things just really changed and he stopped being around and Barb seemed very distressed. So clearly something happened. It, and it, mm -hmm. it seems like that was very obviously him doing sketchy international oil deals or whatever else he was moving <laughs> i'm not even convinced it's oil i think that man is sketchier than that <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i so we find out that he was like what the ceo or he worked for like southern electric yep. whatever that is yep. lost that job and was accused of doing some unethical stuff but then won a court case like a defamation a three million dollar defamation suit so that's a pretty yeah. hefty suit so they must have accused him of something real bad for him to get three million dollars i mean that's that's not child's play no and it and it makes you because you know i'm thinking like okay this almost like going into all these shady deals almost sounds like a man who is like oh shit my family has become accustomed to a certain lifestyle and I have to figure out how to maintain that now that my reputation has been ruined. Right. But he just got $3 million. Like, sell one of the houses and go live in one of the other houses and call it a day. Like, the kids seem to have been in public school in Madison anyway. Right? Yep. Like, it's not like... Ew. Yeah. Um, I think that they had moved to Madison following the divorce or the separation. I don't yeah. think he lived with them there, correct? And it seemed that there was a pivot in their financial situation for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, Madison refers to it. He said, we were quite wealthy and then we weren't. What, you know, what happened? Do you want to talk about that? And that was another like, my lawyer say I probably shouldn't. So I'm going to just give you these horribly concise and non-meaning answers. But yeah. uh, so I I think that the, I, I think that, um, his shady business dealings are just the tip of the iceberg of who Jeffrey Hamburg is. Like, and, mm -hmm. and now the fact that he just like lives with his sister in Queens, like the yeah. aunt, like that's really, this is a, this is a not well individual on so many levels. Um, he really, he just doesn't seem, something is so off. I, I don't I don't know. He he made me nervous this whole time. <laughs> yeah, he like he looks unwell. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. I mean, you don't get that many really great pictures of him because everything's from afar because everything's being done in secret, but he doesn't he he is looking a bit dirty, right? Yeah. Where like he's he almost seems yeah. like he's shrinking. His secrets something. are eating him up from the inside out. <laughs> I mean, I believe that happens to people. I think that people who mm -hmm. are, like, harboring things, they do. It just, it rots you from the inside out. I really think that that can happen. And it, he has that, like, kind of, he's turning into, like, a little Skeletor kind of thing going on. It's worth noting, too, that that last conversation we see between Madison and his father when he's 
seemingly back wherever he lives, not on the East Coast, uh, mm-hmm. was the last mm-hmm. time he's talked to his dad. And he's tried to call him. He tried to give him a screener before uh, the show aired. Mm-hmm. And he has just absolutely shut down all communication with his son. And that to me, like, your son has already lost one parent. You must have done something mm-hmm. really bad if you're willing to basically make this kid an orphan at this point. Like, it just seems like there's so, like, that was the beginning of the story, like, for Jeffrey. Like, whatever Jeffrey did with, if he was involved in Barbara or was a business partner that killed Barbara to get back at him or something like that, I just feel like that is the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, Barbara was sober when she was writing the stuff about, you know, needing to talk to Interpol if something happened to her. Like, she was sober. She didn't didn't drunkenly create these fake documents. No. No, and like when he's saying it's faked, how could you fake that? Je- Jeffrey was at court when this happened. How convenient is that alibi? Yeah. Right? Especially when you look into the fact that there could have been a phone call made to tell her to change the court time so that she wouldn't be there. It just feels, it just feels not right. It's not, there's something, I, I really, I hope that we get more on this. Uh, and you, I don't want it to be him for Madison's sake. Right. You know, I feel like that is going to be potentially the worst outcome. I mean, at least if you, he'll get a resolution. But uh, I I just, I, I wonder going into this, what, who Madison really thought, like what his thought process was. And then coming out of it with what he knew as of the close of this documentary, like what he thought. Really, I'm I'm fascinated by that because again, you're like these are his family. This is, this is uh, it's a totally different thing than if you know we just did a true crime documentary film. Part of what I found so compelling about Madison was his ability to present all options as equal and not necessarily yeah. throw his weight one way or another. You know, he probably knows more than anyone at this point about the case, but he really was such a professional in his presentation of the case right. and the facts and not getting too invested. I thought that was actually a real strength of the documentary. I think it is, but that's why now moving forward, I want to know because he did play it so close to the chest and he gave everything, um, you know, very equal treatment and everyone very equal treatment. And so it really makes me wonder what, what he really, what he thinks, what he feels like, what his experience with this, you know, did for him. Especially knowing that he doesn't talk to his father at all anymore. Something I'm thinking, um, like, as we talk this through is, like, I would be interested to see a timeline of that actual morning, right? Because, so we know that now that she definitely dropped Allie off at school, right? At, like, what was it, Mm -hmm. 745? yeah. I think they arrived at school, they left at 745, and she was dropped off at 751. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, so she goes home, mm-hmm. and now what, they said that, like, under other circumstances, she would have just gone straight to court, right? Right. But she thought it had been moved to 2 o'clock. So what time was the actual court case, did they say? 9.30. It was supposed to be, like, 9.30. Yeah. So if she'd known, she okay. would have gone right home. She would have gone straight from dropping Allie off at school. She wouldn't have gone home. But if she right. goes home... Which, you know, how far can she live from the school? How long could it possibly take her to get back to her house? Not long. She goes home. Someone's waiting for her. Yep. Is that, 
it seems to me like there's plenty of time to get from the house to the courthouse. The other thing about the waiting for her thing I just thought about, that driveway was very open. There's not a lot of places to hide Mm -hmm. a car. So I'm now really Mm -hmm. thinking like the golf course as a point of access. You know, how you have to drive past all these houses. You would assume in Madison, Connecticut, people have surveillance footage or surveillance cameras on their property that you could get caught on. So whoever did this had to get in and out of the property without being seen by neighbors, without being seen. I mean, even the golf course is tricky, right? If there's people playing golf, like you got to make sure that they're not coming upon you. Her house was right there. So that gave me pause for sure as to like how, what was the entry and what was the exit? I would love to know what her time of death was. Like, And it looked super swampy too, like to cross Mm -hmm. from the road to behind the house, like where the golf course sort of is. There's like, it's a swamp. So maybe like, that's evidence to it being somebody that she knows. Like, it's not a car that would make mm-hmm. her be like, oh, my God, there's a random person. Because, you know, if me personally, right. if I'm already having all these fears about my husband's shady business dealings and I pull into my driveway and there's a strange car there, I'm not getting out of my fucking car. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm certainly not mm-hmm. getting my purse and walking to the front of the house. So that implies that she got out of the car thinking everything is business as normal, business as usual, rather, and gets to the front step and is then attacked by someone and... So either it's a car there that she recognizes and she's getting out of the car and being like, oh, hey, so-and-so, and and then they bludgeon her, or it Mm -hmm. was someone that was concealed. And there's just not – it doesn't seem like there's a lot of places for someone to hide. Well, it does – so I get the feeling that, like, she basically lives on, like, a private street. Yep. Right? Like, it seems like there's a house next door, maybe. Mm -hmm. I can't tell if it's the house that faces the main road or not. Yeah. Um, and he does say mm-hmm. like, oh, they've got a straight shot from that window. But when you look at the window, it's like a old, cra- it looks like a garage window or something. Right. It doesn't look like a place anyone would be spending any time. Um, and, and just so, and so I don't think there's like a neighbor across the street, for instance, you know what I mean? Like, I think like there's probably those two houses facing the main road, her driveway slash private road goes up between those houses and then she's behind them there's a lot of overgrowth like we don't really know what the landscaping looked like at that point it could there could have been smaller bushes or it could have been wildly overgrown you know what i mean like when he's going back it's years later and that's probably very different um so i was thinking about the couch cushions too or the patio cushions like you know, yeah. they said that it was March, so they didn't have the cushions out. So the cushions were mm-hmm. likely in the garage. So, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, if that person's got access to her car, they could feasibly open the garage and get in there. But that, to me, also applies, implies intimacy with the surroundings, like knowing mm-hmm. where stuff is. They say that the murder weapon was likely a hammer. Like, did that hammer come from her garage? Did that hammer, right. was it brought? It seems like a very odd choice of a weapon to bring with you. It seems more like a weapon of convenience. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if it's possible that, like, she backed out of the garage to take Allie to school, left the garage door open, yeah. or just opened it coming home with the clicker, you know, yep. and mm-hmm. someone was in there, whatever the case may be. Because I think they say, right, that Conway says, like, I thought it was weird that her car was in the driveway. Yep. Yep. Not in the garage, yeah. basically. But or no, she said she didn't think she was home, right? And that's why she thought it was weird that the car was in the driveway. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's there's yeah. a lot there. Yeah, we've really is... gone down a rabbit hole here, people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Well, we should note, if you know anything, if you're listening to this and you know anything, uh, Madison's got a tip line up. Barbara Hamburg, I believe it's barbarahamburg.com, and he's got all sorts of anonymous tip lines. He said there's been a lot of tips since the documentary came out, which is great. Mm. This is how cold cases get solved. So, you know, if you lived in Madison and you saw anything sketchy in the surrounding time, you might think it was nothing, but that might nothing be the thing that solves the crime. So... If you're out there mm-hmm. listening to Big Little Podcast and you know something, help this poor family figure this out so they can be at peace. Yeah, I mean, we wish Madison the best in hunting down his mom's killer and we ha- will 100% cover it if and when he does. And we should know first, right? It's our local news. Right. We're going to have to like put up an alert for this. But in the meantime, <laughs> we have a really exciting interview coming up with Michael P. Devine, a.k.a. Detective O'Rourke from The Undoing. Um, our first real big uh, interview. This is very exciting. I know. And uh, we've also still got our book club episode to come out. So you guys definitely stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Big Little Podcast. If you enjoy our show, please consider becoming one of our valued podcast supporters at www.thebiglittlepodcast.com or just leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Can't get enough of us? Follow us on social media at Big Little Podcast for exclusive content in between new episodes.